Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. Born in Gambia, Kwaku Ambimbola earned his MFA in poetry from the University of Michigan's Helen Zell Writers Program. He is of Gambian, Ghanaian, and Sierra Leonean descent. Abimbola's first full-length poetry collection, Saltwater Demands a Psalm, was published by Grey Wolf Press in 2023. In 2022, the debut collection was selected by Tiemba Jess to receive the Academy of American Poets' first book award. Abimbola's writing primarily investigates colonization, black mourning, black boyhood, gender politics, and the spiritual consequences of climate change in West Africa. He is a visiting professor of English and creative writing at the University of Tampa. Kwaku, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Thank you so much, James. Well, before discussing your book, share a little bit about how your University of Michigan MFA experience uh, benefited you. What did you gain from the Helen Zell Writers Program that influenced your poetry? And what advice do you have for writers considering an MFA program? That's a really good question, I think, because my MFA experience was very, um, I'll say unique because of, of COVID. So I had like one normal semester where I was in person, going to readings, having class, then boom, everything else after that was virtual, which made my poetry experience, I think, a bit more silent. You know, mm. it was a lot more, we're isolating, we're quarantining, et cetera. My cohort, we would still like get together virtually, you know, which was like a nice balm during those times, but it was very different, you know, which I think is informed the early stages of the manuscript because like the writing is a lot more quiet. Mm. I think it's a lot more cerebral, like in a way, uh, which now I think my, my writing is really driven by sound. Uh, I think the Michigan MFA was great for me, A, because it was fully funded. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think um, limits sort of the access to, to certain MFA programs, especially for writers of color, writers who are from overseas, right? having a fully funded program gives you a lot more latitude to focus on your writing and not having to get a second or, or third job to survive. I also think that uh, my MFA experience was really, um, was strong at Michigan because of the professors that I had. I was privileged to work with Avan Jordan and Samita Chakraborty, who like gave so much to us, exposed us to uh, really great writers as well. Mm-hmm. And, those structured their courses in ways that catered to us as holistic writers, right? So it's not just about the work that, that we produce, but also they made sure to check in on us, which I think is something that's missing in a lot of the um, graduate schools, like in general, like how do you show up for your students beyond the syllabus, mm-hmm. beyond the curriculum, treating them as whole human beings, not just people who are there to get their, their degree. But I think the thing that like impacted my experience the most was just like having a, a strong cohort uh, the people that I went to my grad program with, people who are in my MFA, I'm still in contact with them today. Many of them still read my manuscripts and like will share poems, et cetera. So shout out to the MFA squad, um, <laughs> Ayo, Julia, Chris, Mary, 
um, uh, Serena, Sarah, yeah, just the whole gang. So I was, I was very grateful for that experience. Well, congratulations on being able to do it fully funded because that really does, it not only is, uh, changes the, the arc during the program, but it changes it afterwards because you have more freedom to do different things than if you have a huge burden of debt that you have to carry around with you that, that influences your decisions of what you can and can't do. So congratulations. Yeah, thank you. I feel like one thing that I always tell people who are looking to get MFA, I'm like, this isn't law school or like medical school. There isn't some like glorious six-figure job waiting for us after the MFA. <laughs> so it might be important for us to like not get into debt to like write poetry. Plus, I think that I'm also an advocate for folks just like finding community where they're at, you know. Um, and I think the community-based aspect of writing is something that transformed my experience, which, yes, you can get through it an MFA, but also there's several other writing groups, depending on whatever city you might be in, that will accept, you know, new writers for free, right, just to share work, book clubs, etc. So I think there are also alternatives for folks who might not have the time, because it also is like a privilege to like have enough time to apply to MFA, and mm-hmm. then like take out of your life <laughs> to just focus on the craft of poetry or fiction or nonfiction, whatever your genre might be. Well, the visual design of your book, Saltwater, demands the psalm is striking. The small details such as symbols sprinkled in and between the poems, the symbols used to create graphic art that take over multiple pages, the series of concrete poems repeated with variations throughout the book. Talk about the vision that emerged for this book and how that vision influenced the design of the book, which is definitely a key element. And I'll do my best to describe it as we go, but I encourage listeners to, to see this book in their hands in person. Definitely. Thank you so much. And I think that the visual piece was really an attempt for me to decolonize language. Um, I am half Guinean and half Sierra Leonean and Nigerian, but I'm born in Gambia. So it's like a lot of different mm-hmm. West African cultures make up my identity. Uh, but for Saltwater in particular, the visual aspect uh, comes from my Ghanaian side. So in Ghana, we have uh, these pictographs called Adinkra symbols which were created in the late 16th century, around that, that time, by a king uh, whose, whose, whose last name was Adinkra. And these symbols were originally just used for people who were in the court, right? So, oh, it, it was printed on, on fabric to distinguish the people of nobility from people who were of common birth, so to speak. But through different trade, conquests, etc., the symbols started to spread throughout Ghana and be began to represent different proverbs and, and maxims and different sayings and even um, poetry. So now something that started off with two or three symbols, there's over 150 symbols in Ghana that are also spread throughout the Black diaspora. So just like that attention to mm-hmm. language that comes in a visual form really inspired uh, Saltwater because Adinkra symbols are used also as chapter breaks and as really like long poems. And I think the most difficult um, a Dinkra symbol to create, like, was the Sankofa pieces that, like, uh, are after the uh, some of the elegiac poems in the the collection, which are basically comprised of names of individuals who were victims of police brutality here in in the U.S. that are shaped into the Sankofa symbol, which is uh, akin to a bird. I think that's like the most simple way to describe it. It's, um, it's a bird that has its head looking backwards and the Sankofa symbolizes memory. It comes from the tree proverb, which translates, it is not taboo to fetch 
what is at risk of being left behind. Hmm. And the difficulty of naming and the difficulty of this, this memory is something that I think the poem tries to honor in a way that is shaped beautifully, but does not take away from the fact that these memories and, and these names have a dramatic history behind them. No, very powerful. And it, it, it uh, and I'm glad you, cre- you included uh, detailed notes at the end, which I waited until the end to read, which I think was better. And I'd say that for those reading the book, uh, resist the temptation to jump to the end and read the notes. It's better to read the book, sort of try to interpret for yourself what all, what this all means. And then when you read the notes, it pulls it all together. And it, it was really satisfying. Thank you for that. Your book interleaves memorials and poignant details of the victims who have been murdered because of racist hate and police brutality. One example from a poem memorializing Trayvon Martin and his dream of becoming a pilot. You wrote, Each night, I paint his eyelid interiors cerulean and wisp. He sees himself boarding an Airbus 350 in crisp first Captain Diggs, a deep navy coat and slacks overlain with bulbous gold buttons. How did you approach writing such challenging and painful subject matter while not losing the poetry while doing so? Mm. I think that I have multiple answers, but I'm going to try and braid them together. These elegiac poems were never originally meant to be published. I Mm. approached them as a way of healing at first. And this was at a time in my own life when I, I was dealing with racial profiling, being pulled over, fearing for my life at the hands of police. And I had a, uh, still, um, I received advice from like, one of my best friends who, like, when I was going through this period of my life, um, told me that it's important for me to write, but also as I'm wading through the violence, it's important for me to not kill the dead again. So I was like, okay, like, hmm. this experience that I had brought me closer to my proximity to this type of of death, right, which is also a kind of strange learning curve that I think accompanies Black immigrants to the U.S. who have not been exposed to, like, state-sanctioned racism or, like, um, systemic racism in the U.S. Because growing up in Gambia, growing up in, in, in Ghana for part of my life, like, this is not something I thought about. Being Black was not part of my identity until I moved over here and learning more about the histories of police brutality in this country. And I think... Going back to this idea of like writing it in a way that doesn't lose poetry, I again turned to the LJ poems that we have, especially in, in, in Ghana. And a lot of the details that I have about the, the individual's lives, for example, Trayvon's life, uh, is inspired by the uh, traditional Akan uh, dirges, which are sung after, uh, usually uh, after the death of a royal, but also like after the death of anyone who was significant in the community. And for me, Trayvon was uh, someone, his his death was very poignant because I was, I think I was 13, 14. So like we were pretty close in age and it was the first time that I'd seen an instance of like just racist violence kind of depicted on TV. It was sort of a, a moment where my consciousness was like forced to wake up um, in, I'm in a way that I hadn't had to experience before. So it was a it was a big mix of different emotions, but I think harkening back to traditional Ghanaian elegies, which always focused on the life and the characteristic of this individual, and also which focused on this idea of death as a transition into an afterlife, 
which is something that I think codes a lot of the elegies in the book, this idea that, hey, these people are being welcomed into this idea of a Black afterlife, into a Black eternity, into a diasporic sort of like ancestral plane. So I think this hope of an afterlife, this hope of a piece of a rest, coupled with this focus on what or who they were in life, um, allowed me to keep some of the poetic elements, right, without uh, sort of drowning in the weight of the trauma, which isn't to say that every piece successfully does that. But I think that one other um, layer that I was trying to work against was how Trayvon was depicted in the news. Mm-hmm. I think that was a really big thing with the hoodie pictures and uh, talking about his whatever trouble he might have had growing up, etc. That really puts salt on the wound. And one thing that I still struggle with is how a lot of these um, news stories, a lot of these instances that we get is sort of normalized. And also um, the individual's families aren't given privacy. You know, I think that there's that this idea of agency that should come with, with like mourning, how one chooses to mourn. And that narrative is often taken away when people with bad intentions get a hold of these stories, get a hold of maybe some not so savory moments of someone's past and choose to, and choose to focus on that instead of the intimate details that make this person fully human. And I think that that, 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 that excerpt I read per, it beautifully does that. It just pulls out this very specific detail that immediately brings Trayvon to life in a way that is just different than if you focused on other elements. Um, this is a dream that he mm-hmm. had, not a moment in our lives that all of us have that we probably want to forget. Um, focus on the dreams, yeah. So you write about the importance of names in the notes you wrote. Purakan custom kredin or soul names are given in accordance with a child's day of birth. The concrete bones which you brought up are constructed from the names in the form of a sankofa, a bird-like symbol. As I read the poems and names, I was reminded of participating in rallies and marches in Oakland, California, where we were led in Say Their Names chants. Mm-hmm. Why are names so important to identity and how do you think about incorporating, how did you think about incorporating the importance of names into this collection, mm-hmm. which is definitely one of multiple threads that goes through the mm-hmm. book? Definitely. Um, I really am drawn to naming because the my name, Kweku, is not a name that I was given. Like, my parents couldn't choose that name. It was, It's just almost idea of, like, the day that you were born, right, that name is stuck with you forever because... Um, and every day in the Khan naming system has different characteristics. So it's kind of like a zodiac sign. Mm-hmm. So I think it's this idea of destiny and fate that is tied into naming that uh, is unique to Ghana, but also it also um, it also complicates this idea of like black time, right? I one thing that I kept thinking about was like, okay, uh, when we think about loss, like when we think about mourning, what does it mean if you come from a place where your name is tied to a day of the week. Like, what does it mean for someone to lose a day of the week? How does how does having this naming system um, cause disruptions in linear time to impact someone more or less? So I was thinking about, okay, um, and Ghana as a space, right? Like, as a space in the Black diaspora, in, in, in Black history, was, especially along the uh, Gold Coast, the Cape Coast, Elmina, millions of enslaved people were brought through Ghana before coming to the new world. 
So the idea behind having a Ghanaian naming system is this idea of rebirth, right? Even though individuals who uh, are African-American here might not be able to trace their ancestry as uh, concretely as, as they would like, it's a high likelihood that their ancestors passed through Ghana, right? Mm. So having this completing the the, the a circle, right? Re, being renamed in a way that welcomes you back. And a lot of it is also like cyclical, right? So it's like this idea that if your name is tied to a day and if someone is, 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 is like mourning you, right? Um, every day of the week that, you know, for example, if I'm born on a Wednesday, whenever a Wednesday would come around, I would think of those born on, on like Wednesday. I would think of those born on Thursday whenever Thursday comes around. And going back to what you said about the, the naming and the chanting, I think it just also ties back to the Sankofa and like memory, right? Like when you say someone's name, when you chant someone's name, it's this idea of keeping their names alive, you know, for as long as um, you stay alive, for as long as people mm-hmm. who have that same memory alive and the collective nature of the naming ceremony is i think the final thing that also ties it all together because from uh, days one to day seven right in a con culture like you're not considered fully alive until day day eight Hmm. and then on day eight that's when you have the naming ceremony when the whole town or the whole family or the whole clan right gets to meet you for the first time so the uh, last part with the importance of naming is because in the Akan tradition, your naming ceremony is your real birth. Uh, because at least people don't necessarily share the same belief today, but people who still follow traditional Akan beliefs believe that uh, a child isn't born unless they're alive for a week, uh, because they believe that that first week is just the spirit form of the child coming to visit just to survey. And then after the eighth day, right, that's when you're considered to be fully alive. And that's when your naming ceremony is supposed to take place where you are welcomed both outside and into the community and where your name is spoken for the first time. So this idea of naming is really tied to the community, to who is able to hear your name first and how you are welcomed. It's never an individual act, but it's always one that's tied toward community. And I think a lot of my impulses behind this book was to, was to stitch or was to try to weave together this idea of a diasporic Black identity, one that's rooted in traditional beliefs and one that's also malleable, depending on where you might find yourself in the diaspora. No, I just think that's another element of the book. Not only the poetry is beautiful, but just so many uh, cultural details that I was not aware of that I learned through the poetry and then through the notes at the end. It was just, I just found it fascinating and beautiful. Thank so, you so much, Jim. <laughs> so I'm a poet who comes from a place of privilege. I'm tall, white, cis male, U.S. citizen with economic security. I basically check if there's a, if there's a, if there's a piece of paper with a checkbox for privilege, I basically check every box. And I'm, yes. I'm aware of that. Um, I'm also angered and moved by the issues you write about so effectively. What advice do you have for poets like me who want to contribute their voice, but who are aware of their privilege and unsure if they even have the right to do so? That's a really important question. And I think that the first thing that I would say for poets with privilege is how can you use your voice to amplify others? I think that's like one of the biggest things because it's not every story or every identity that we should write about. You know, I think that certain poets and writers do it well. But one thing that 
is really important is to think about, okay, who am I taking space from? Mm. And how I amplify the voice of someone else who might be from this place or this space who doesn't have the same platform that 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 I do, and it's a it's a really big debate because even like mm. Toni Morrison would talk about, especially like in the in the source of self regard and some of her later interviews talking about how in her creative writing classes she doesn't care where you're from or what your identity is. She wants her students to write about places that 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 that, that they don't know because she's saying, oh, when you're a younger writer you only know but so much. And I think that I see that point, but also I push back against it because we live in a world that is very skewed, right? Like 77% of MFA programs uh, are, 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 are white, you know, and there's even a few percentage of, of, of people here in, in the U.S. who are immigrants who are getting into MFAs, right? So I think for writers with privilege, think about how you can use your voice to amplify those who don't have that, that privilege. And I think that some writing prizes are doing that more now. A lot of writers that I follow, I see them posting writers from other countries, etc. But it's really less about um, trying to write stories that aren't from your identity and more so about how can we sort of widen the scope of, of poetry so more poets who don't get the same platform can, can, can have a shot to also share their work. I really like the point you make about um, finding a way to amplify versus you know, taking the limited space that there is. Um, that's a really good way to frame it and think about it. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you so much, James. So your poem, Abenada, for Tamir Rice, closes with these beautiful lines. All water has perfect memory, even snow. I birthed his skin with watercolor and welcomed him in that November snow. How did you approach finding the ending for this poem during the revision and editing process and in general? Endings as I think any poet will tell you, are excruciating to get right. Yes. <laughs> uh, so how did you approach finding the ending for this poem specifically, and, and how do you do it generally? Ooh, yeah, I struggle with endings. Like, that is something that I, I, I admire poets like Jericho Brown who, like, have this, like, formula. You know, I've tried to do the little formula thing because Jericho talks about when he has a poem that has a certain theme, he'll, like, go through everything that he's written with that same theme and like either take a beginning of, of some st- of, of like one poem, take an ending for a different poem and like mix, mix it all together. I, I'm not that smooth with it, but I think for this poem in particular, I wanted to mimic the tide. And because um, this is for Tamir Rice, Tamir Rice was born on a Tuesday and Tuesday is the same birthday as the ocean God. Mm. Uh, that something that, I allude to in the collection, basically like each day of the week has a different like spirit or God that is associated with it. So my day Wednesday is Anansi, the the, the spider. For, for those born on a Tuesday, their birthday is, is the God of the ocean. So there's this idea of like, um, there's a cyclicality that comes in with this piece that I think helped make the, this ending easier because I mention and repeat the theme of of the water and the ocean and the phases of the water cycle. So I think thinking about the the water cycle, beginning with the ocean, beginning with the tide, and then talking about watercolor, and then knowing that um, Tamir lost his life in winter um, and snow being obviously one form of water, it was this idea of beginning 
where or ending where I began. And it kind of goes back to the larger project of restitching the diaspora, right? So this idea of this ancestral spirit welcoming this young man in a place and in a space where you wouldn't really expect it. Beautiful. Well, many of the poems in this collection also play with the visual forms, including the series of concrete poems, which we've discussed. Uh, Mimanata for Sandra Bland dances across the page visually. How did you use visual form as a tool for crafting this poem and your poetry in general? Definitely. I think for the uh, Sandra Bland poem, one thing that was very striking was the fact that she that she grew up playing the the trombone. So when I found that, which which is like mentioned in um in the poem, mm-hmm. like when when I came across that fact, I wanted the stanzas to mimic the sliding of a like of a trombone, which is a, a ode to the form of art that like um that she was an expert at. She played it throughout high school, and she was she was on scholarship to um, play trombone. Um, at the Prairie Texas Prairie A and M University, which is a HBCU in in Texas, uh, so that like just having the details of uh, Sandra's life made it a little easier to like play with that form. But also going back to this idea of like water having perfect memory and this idea of like breath and cyclicality, I think cycles definitely play a really big um, portion in this collection because. Uh, to play the trombone, you have to have great breath control. And that's something that I wanted to, to like, think about. Like, what does it mean to hold your breath? What does it mean to extend um, one's breath in the same way that you can hold the, the 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 slide of a trombone, bring it out, pull it in, and you have such a range of motion and of voice just from the single instrument and all from this idea of breath control. But one other like aspect of the visual quality of these pieces again, goes back to, to the fact that I resist form or, or I try to resist form as much as I can uh, because a lot of the energy of this was trying to go back to a more indigenous form of West African poetry, which does not necessarily uh, vibe well with received Western forms. So for this uh, sort of project, it was more so based on patterns and repetition which uh, repetition plays a really big role in traditional Akan poetry and also like trying to repeat rhythm and sound, especially, which I think my newer poetry is also kind of in that creative, um, that also tries to carry that creative energy, focusing more on sound and repetition and less on received Western forms. Well, I think that's a beautiful thing about poetry is that there are, There are rules if you want to use them and you don't have to use the rules and you can create your own rule set or have no rule set that you're you're basing it on and all of it can be beautiful. And I think that's just what makes poetry has such wonderful, diverse set of tools. What a poem sounds like when it's recited, what a poem looks like, even if you're not looking at the words and the words themselves. Um, Yeah, I think that's what makes poetry such a beautiful art form. Certainly. I agree. And I think one thing that I'm really looking forward to just is being exposed to more poetry. I'm, I'm really excited to learn more poetry from all different parts of the world. I'm, I've been moved by Arabic poetry recently. I'm, I'm just curious as to how different folk tales and folklore and belief systems impact how uh, different peoples across the world approach poetry. 
Well, poems such as the naming ceremony poems, and especially Proverbs, an ode to black advice, are multilingual. The poems remain accessible to unilingual readers like myself, but add something unique. Safiel Hillo, who I interviewed last year, also effectively incorporates multilingual elements into her poetry. What is your approach to incorporating another language into your poetry while you know, ensuring that the poem is accessible to those that are unilingual, or is that not really a concern? Yeah, I think that it's not as much of a concern for me anymore. Like when I was an undergrad, I was really worried about making my, po- my, my poems accessible to everybody. And then I received great advice that like, that's kind of Im- impossible. Every poet, I think, writes from, from a particular uh, set of experiences, languages, cultures, et cetera, and writes to a particular set of people who, who may or may not share their experiences. So for me, I want any reader who encounters my work who might not understand the language to focus on what it, the poem makes them feel. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's so much richness and so much more participation that can that can come from the reader when they're in this space of of um, curiosity, right? Because I feel like a lot of readers who don't come from from from, from the U.S. we're we're very used to this, right? Like when I'm um, was encountering English poetry for the first time or just English literature for the first time, so many of the references I had no idea. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like I had no idea <laughs> what was going on. But I had to do the uh, work, right, to either Google it or research or ask somebody. And I feel like now that more poets of color are publishing, right, it's important for us to similarly, like, stay true to the languages, to the references that, like, make sense to us and invite readers to also do that work of discovery, of curiosity. And like, that's one thing that my grandma would always say, like, Oh, she's like, oh, you people nowadays with with your apps, you know, because she 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 taught English in Ghana for fifteen years, uh, in 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 um, Accra High School, and she's like, oh, you know, when I was teaching in uh, high school, we had dictionaries. So if you didn't know how to spell a word, you had to look it up, and in the process of looking up that word, you'd find so many other things that you weren't necessarily looking for, but it would add to your to your experience of the of that knowledge and of that discovery so i think in that same vein like whenever you encounter stuff that you don't understand in a poem that space of curiosity can add so much more to your reading experience right that just like having a quick footnote or or like or knowing the reference on on hand might not and i think that that is another cool thing about poetry is that because a good poetry is 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 by design so compact and and doesn't have extraneous detail that it uh, a, a, a good poem about something you're not familiar with, whether it's the words or the subject matter or a reference, it, it just gives you a starting point to go off and expiter and explore where the, if it was a 600 page, uh, you know, essay that it <clears> would spell it all out for you right there and wouldn't have as many openings to go explore and, and understand things. So I think that is uh, yes, I was, I was, I was um, at certain points taking Google translate and, uh, and, and, uh, and trying to use that to translate the language because I was fascinated by it. And, uh, and also the references in the book that I was trying to figure out before I got to the notes just enriched the whole experience. Oh, certainly. Thank you so much. So uh, you also incorporate dialect into some of your poems. There's a series of several poems, The Function and Barbershop Philosophy are uh, two examples that are enriched with language that brings a clear voice into the poetry. 
Dialogue, mm-hmm. whether in poetry or in fiction, can be very challenging to write. Uh, mm-hmm. What is your approach to dialogue, and in particular dialogue that incorporates dialect, to achieve lines that sound so natural? And to me, it was as though you had overheard them and just wrote them down verbatim. Yes, I really appreciate that question because I've been thinking more about what poetry is beyond the page. And for me to incorporate those moments of dialogue, I had to speak them. Because mm. they're like, I, and, and, and now speaking my poems is the first step in any revision that I do. I have to hear the poem out loud. I have to hear how my voice and how my breath sounds. And I think even practicing with other folks for the for like the like dialogue made it uh, a bit easier. But yeah, I was able to really achieve that like natural flow by speaking it. And I feel like how we write, like the voice in like in our head might sound good, but like, when we say it out loud, like oh, like this sounds like mechanical, or this sounds, you know, like too rehearsed, or or like or too capital P poetic, right? How can I get to how I st- I speak with my friends or how? I would hear these conversations at the barbershop. And I think one of the things that a lot of parts of the book are like autobiographical or like semi-autobiographical. So like some of the conversations are like from memory, you know, which I think might add to that natural, um, to like to the, to the natural feel, but also just like having other readers who share a similar experience read this out loud definitely helped me to get to that final state where there is that language economy where there is that music um and also it has this like more of a natural feel because there's also so much poetry that is found in dialect there's there's so much rhyme and there's so much economy that can be found in slang that i wanted to also highlight throughout the collection that's such good advice to uh, read out loud um, for a whole bunch of reasons. And I'm going to add dialogue uh, as a particularly valuable use of reading out loud. For decades, I've written poetry, but it's only recently that I overcame the self-consciousness of reading a poem out loud. And it is fascinating how your inner voice and your actual breathed voice are totally different. Totally right. different. <laughs> I mean, that's really amazing. And another, uh, I worked with a poetry. I've worked with a poetry coach, who I meet with periodically, and uh, he recommended that you, when you first written a poem and you're not sure if it's working or not, just have someone read it cold back to you and see mm-hmm. where they see where they stumble, see where they get excited, where they haven't they haven't written it, so they don't have their mind filling in the blanks. They're just reading the words they've been given, and that's a very useful tool as well. Definitely. I love that piece of advice. Yeah. And it's just, you see where they stumble and then you go, hmm, okay, maybe I right. need some punctuation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's definitely true. Reading out loud for dialogue is, is something, I, I, it's interesting how every single one of these interviews, I take something away and mm. uh, and, and dialogue something I've wrestled with, but I think that I'm going to reapproach it as a, um, especially emphasizing the reading out loud to get it right. That's cool. I really appreciate that. And I think that one other thing with dialogue is that it's such a site for play and surprise. Because I think it's like, a, it's A, if you have your dialogue in italics already, it disrupts, you know, the like normal language, quote unquote, that a poem might might have. And also it's just a, a space where you're introducing more, more voices into a piece. So, yeah. Absolutely. Well, your book closes with the perfect poem, a poem that ties all of the symbols together. 
Most poetry collections are just that, a collection of poems written individually and then crafted into a book later. Using this last poem as an example, was this poem written to serve the themes of the book or did this poem emerge from the, the themes in the book? His one, I think one of the funniest things about this poem and which also I think goes back to how this collection tries to dis, tries to disrupt time is that this, like the Adinkra poem that closes is one of the oldest poems in the book. People often joke that your first book is like the collection you've been writing for your, like your entire life. <laughs> and I wrote this poem before probably any other piece in Saltwater. And I think it's from this obsession with Adinkra and from this obsession with trying to honor like indigenous black linguistics that much of Saltwater came from in the end. And Adinkra was also, I think just like, if you're looking at the book, like, um, the order of the book, Adinkra was going to come in the middle. But after like meeting other great editors, like, okay, this is, sounds more like an ending poem because now you can have the reader um, sort of piece together their interpretations of the Adinkra with a bit more poetic guidance from how the stanzas also um, interpret the, the Adinkra without necessarily giving definitions of it. Well, I'm now going to turn the mic over to you to read selections from Saltwater Demands, a psalm. Good air. Today, we gather at the mouth of the Brooklyn Bridge to pray the names of the just dead. Brianna Oluwatoyin, names cradled and vaulted to air, but after air, where? Black woman's wisdom cautions against letting out the good air. There is no telling the manner of air waiting to hex you beyond your doorstep. My mother, an air tender, kept the air within our home good. The goodness of this air is equal parts plantain oil, lemon pepper, Cinnamon, cocoyam, blue magic, African royale, black soap, black castor oil, black. Water has perfect memory. But air? Don't let out the good air because good air is fragile and finite. Let in too much outside and it's liable to spoil. Before I moved out, my mother, the air keeper, Hurry to bottle as much of our good air as I could carry. She spiced the living room, pulling the mango warm fragrance of photo albums and Polaroids, the cola tang of Fela's zombie, the lilac of Whitney's Whitney. Then with all the trimmings of her best air honed and humming, she pirouetted, clutching an open mason jar in each hand. After seven complete twirls, she rushed to date and seal each jar, and again, again, again. Now, whenever I leave home, though I carry my weight in her air-toned jars, still my mother pleads, don't let out my good air, meaning hurry back in, meaning black children have gone missing so swiftly. People turn to blame the air. Up next, I have Stank Face, which is an ode to Black expression. 
And if you've never seen a stank face before, you can uh, reference Google Images and you will find a plethora of stank faces. Or you can watch any good jazz musician after a solo and they will give you a good stank face as well. Here is stank face. Oh, stank face. Your origin begins with rhythm. Like the first ever jam session, somewhere beneath a tendrilled canopy and near brackish water, where best we worship. Someone hits a clean lick on the drums, accentuating the oomph of a dancer stomping, which then compels the flutist to conjure a riff and complete this eclipse. And the nigga on the drums, knowing she's made something cosmic, raises her cheeks, flares her nostrils, protrudes her lips. The triangle of her features screams to her fellow players, yo, you seen the shit I just put down? Then the xylophonist, seeing her stank face, flashes his own. You thought that was hot. Peep this. Then bruh went off. In the same night, the world witnessed its first two stank faces. Oh, stank face, because you're so communicable, I wonder if you're less expression and more spirit. Benevolent haint, you're so easily possessed. Your hosts relinquish their regular speech in exchange for something prolonged, vowel-laden. Hey, yo, you're... Oh, stank face. Thank you for allowing driveway dunkers to feel like Giannis when he drives with his left, Euro steps through the paint, whirls and melds his ballful fist with the basket. Oh, Stankface, thank you for possessing twerkers when they throw it back and bewitch the twerk catcher to also yield to the stank. Oh, Stankface, thank you for allowing me to utilize the full girth of my black nose and gulp the funk of all my loves. Any ode to the stank face is first an ode to black noses. Oh, stank face, thank you especially for allowing me to savor the stench of my littlest victories. I wake up, I unsilk my hair, my twist out is looking right, I dress, my Ankara is popping. My niggas and my loves bless my timeline with memes and Twitter antics. I hold myself. A spot of sun dollops my nose as Spotify Rewind cues up control by Malik Berry, bathing me in summer 16 serenity. I shocky. I shaku. I stank face. And my final poem for this afternoon is Saltwater Demands a Psalm. This is an ode to the fishing villages that I come from on both my mother's and father's side. And it also calls out the practice of overfishing whereby uh, Western corporations routinely overfish in West African coastal waters. Saltwater Demands a Psalm, Jamestown Beach, Accra, Ghana. The moon's gray whisks morning waves. Groundswells glide and trade this silver snakeskin for sunrise. And we're up, my crew and I. We've been up. We've wagered the winds. 
Braced the tides, combed and poured over our nets, nursing any tangles or, or weathered gaps. Our boats wait ready, licked in kente hues, names like happiness, good luck, nyamidria, and big catch are branded onto their still banked hulls, buoyed at the heels of palm trees. Listen. We've come ashore singing, clapping, humming. Saltwater demands a song. We owned a measure of horizon and funked with the tide chasing it during each morning catch before the barges came. Before the barges came and scraped our reefs clean, we now vie with them for the final fish. It's a butterfish. We haven't netted any guitarfish or sandy grouper in months. It has to be a butterfish. They've been my village's anchor since when I was a child learning to fish. I asked my father if the water below us was dead. He said, the water is only as dead as the bodies beneath and alive as the bodies above. He reached down offering a palm full of salt water. We both drank, swear to keep this balance. These aren't the first ships coming to starve us. They won't be the last. Even our last butterfish knows this. And he's merciful. He's promised we won't even have to catch him. He'll come to us grinning and prideful and we'll scoop him into a bucket of salt water and bring him back to shore. We'll feed him and groom him, trimming his airy whiskers. We'll dress him in purple kente like an ohene. We'll make festivals in his honor, make love in his honor, and name our children thus. And the day he passes, we'll round up the village families and lead them with us to sea. And with our boats, we'll blockade the barges and bury our last butterfish. No casket, no pyre, just salt water in a song. Oh, I just love hearing poets read their poetry, and you have a particularly compelling um, presentation of your poetry that's just beautiful. And it's actually something that a couple of years ago I was incredibly self-conscious and terrible at reciting my poetry, so I hired a poetry coach to teach me how to recite my poetry. So I don't know if you just naturally knew how to do it or if you, if you got a lot of help along the way, but that was a beautiful presentation of your poetry. Thank you so much, James. And I also struggled with my poetry, like reciting it for a while. Um, I grew up with a pretty bad speech impediment. So it was really like taking improv classes. Um, I had a, a poetry coach who was like my, um, a, a theater teacher that I had in undergrad and taking her class, Lady T, she really helped me overcome, you know, that like fear of, of speaking in, in public. So I, I think I definitely also resonate with the fact that it's not something that came naturally to me at all. And I'm really appreciative of the fact that it was able to resonate with you too. Well, and I learned uh, from work, uh, the poetry coach I worked with was, had, he competes in, in poetry reciting competitions. He did a, a screenwriting and theater degrees at USC. And so mm -hmm. he, he really drilled into me. And it's so cool to hear your experience. It's so similar that, that reciting poetry is a skill 
that you yes. need to learn. <laughs> and and that uh, maybe there are some people that are magically born with that gift, but I'd say the vast majority, it is a skill you have to learn uh, like many other skills and that that's okay. Yes. Beautiful. Certainly. Uh, beautiful. Um, well, the poems you read, including the title poem of your book, uh, provide a wonderfully, establish a wonderful sense of place. Mm-hmm. What was your thought process for choosing Saltwater Demands a Psalm to lead the collection and serve as the title for the book? Those are two really hard things. Which poem to start with <laughs> and what to call a book? They're just painful decisions. And in making, once you made that choice, did the poem mm-hmm. need to change in any way to serve that critical role of the title of the book and also the, the lead poem in the collection? Definitely. I, I, I had Saltwater Demands a Psalm as the title before I had it as the title poem. And that was influenced by the fact that uh, I grew up uh, Christian. And the Psalms were my favorite book because of how they played with language. And this collection deals with uh, interrogating Christianity through a more Afro-diasporic lens. Um, so that was something that I wanted to be like, central to to like in the title of it like like this idea that these are maybe black psalms and salt water is also a very fraught term when you think about the black atlantic what it means for us to uh traverse this divide right through the the lens of poetry and to traverse it the opposite way what does it mean for me as african now to speak back to africa but living in America and writing in English. But as far as um, having the poem come first, I have to thank my editor at Grey Wolf Chance, Erilyn, who, like this was originally like the third to the, what, the the super super uh, penultimate or something like that, whatever the, the word is, it was the third to last poem in the collection. And Chance was like, okay, this poem actually captures a lot of what the collection does already, right? This idea of reclaiming language, this idea of saltwater and fishing and these these themes of the what how ritual functions within black diasporic life and how the the people in saltwater demands a psalm the poem are adamant of preserving their rituals and their culture in the midst of being attacked by these larger corporations who are taking away their resources right all of these themes and struggles and tensions are really um, are evident throughout the collection. So that it was Chance's idea. At first, I was resistant to it. But then after reading the manuscript with Salt Lord Man's Psalm first, it made so much more sense. So again, I think this kind of goes back to something that we've alluded to a bit during our conversation. But just like having other eyes look at your work can open up so many new avenues because you get stuck. You know, I think it's something that especially like going through MFA, having to produce a thesis, right? You get stuck in the same modes of thinking, of thinking, oh, this is an end product without having other eyes look at it and give you new ways of approaching the same language, the same poems, et cetera. Well, finally, what are you working on now? I am working on a few things. I think the most um, exciting one is a second collection entitled Chant, which tells the story, well, which tells a variation of the story of my great-great-grandfather, who was a uh, noble, who was from nobility in the Yoruba uh, 
among the among the Yoruba people in Nigeria, um, his village was raided in the late 1880s, and he was captured by the Portuguese and was en route to Brazil. Uh, thankfully, his ship was intercepted by the Royal British Navy, who would actually patrol West African coastal waters and uh, try to, to try to stop the the then illegal uh, international slave trade. He was freed in Freetown, Sierra Leone, and he made his his um, his life in Sierra Leone uh, after the fact, which is why my father and my grandfather were born in Sierra Leone, despite being of Nigerian heritage and descent. Chant reimagines this um, story, and in this alternate reality, uh, I I my, my my grandfather is replaced by this drummer, who is taken from Nigeria and brought to Brazil. And in Brazil, he escapes. He becomes a Maroon and joins a, a, a community of Maroons who are living in the heat hills of Rio de Janeiro. And his whole goal now as a drummer is to try to use ritual, right, to conjure the spirit of those he loves to now join him in Brazil because he believes that the Portuguese will keep coming and keep trying to enslave them. So he wants to prevent them from, from having to go through the same fate that he did. Uh, so Chant begins with this story, but also focuses on how drumming and dance uh, serve very strong spiritual roles within Black, um, within black communities and how we can sort of uh, use drum and dance to investigate African metaphors of love, longing, and reconnection. Well, I'm so looking forward to what you uh, have coming up next. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed Saltwater Demands a Psalm, and I encourage everyone who's been intrigued by hearing about this book, actually physically hold it in your hands. Well, Kweku, thank you for sharing your poetry and your voice on the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. It was such an honor, James. I had such a wonderful time with our conversation and your generous questions. And I'm looking forward to um, supporting the podcast and also to encountering your work as well in the future. Thank you. The Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch, subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings.com.